Things are going to start happening to me now. You've done all the reading. You're a scholar. You're a professor. You've done all the reading. You've done the intellectual heavy lifting. Carlos, eat shit and die. You wouldn't know a fact if it begged you all night long. Want to like, um, you know, give the wrong impression because I am, I I am very high. Fucking ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. Yeah, care. I'm a libertarian. What I'm getting is, did you vote for Joe Jorgensen or Trump? Who? That was the perfect answer. Thank you. (laughs) It's day two, everybody. Uh, Tom Woods week. The Tom Woods show. This is Tyler Yonke, the Libertarian Podcast Review. Welcome aboard. We are doing the extensive five, six day, I don't know, um, review of the Tom Woods show. So I hope you saw episode one, day one, where we gave a good breakdown of Tom Woods himself. We played some clips of him on Michael Malice. Uh, I read some stuff off of the Wikipedia. I talked about some of the controversies. They aren't people. I just thought I would mention them just to make sure we cover our bases. Today, uh, we're going, and then we did uh, one and 1.5. I, I recorded that one and it was like two and a half hours. I'm like, I got to split this up. So I think we're going to do a six day uh, slog here of the Tom Woods show. I've been listening to almost every single episode and I'm going to shout it out here and giving you guys the opportunity to hear the highlights and then my breakdown of this. Um, and we're going to kind of recap some of what we went through um, with uh, day one, 1.5. Also, I'm wearing a hat. I feel like I'm over underdressed for the Tom Woods show even uh, <laughs> review, uh, partly because every time I see his little snapshot, I, it, I, I've only seen Tom in a T-shirt a few times, and it's one, it's the Tom Woods announcement, which I use as my overlay for when I do the videos, some of the, the clips and stuff. But uh, Tom put everything up on, on YouTube. Uh, the first few episodes uh, did not have some of that, those opportunities. So I clipped those out. I made little videos and I put them up in a little still of him. Um, but these ones, these are all on YouTube. And by the way, um, when I get down to the end, we're going to talk about his intro, his music choices, how he went through it. Um, and these first few hundred episodes actually molded where he had this, the music and whatnot and into the, the one he has now. So we'll, we'll give all that on uh, the breakdown of who am I? I'm Tyler Yonke. I do Libertarian Podcast Review. We review podcasts. We find that autistic star you just didn't know you needed in your life. But in this case, it's Tom Woods. It's one of the OGs. Started his show back in 2014. He's ramping this thing up. When I started, he was at almost to 2300. He's gone through <laughs> through that because it takes me a while. I've got to compile these. I've got to figure all this out. Uh, anyway, like I said, my name is Tyler Yonke. We also do a show with Andy Garbage Main, where we uh, do Kill Pod. Andy comes on a lot, and we do uh, we interviewed uh, Stefan Kinsala. I've had Brian McWilliams on of Lions of Liberty. Dave Smith has been on the show, a part of the problem. Um, we I have in in the in the. In my DMs is Nick Gillespie of Reason Magazine. I'd love to have him come on. He said he's going to come on. We keep trying to work this out. Jeff Deist as well of the Mises Institute. 
a plethora of people we have on here. But I thought it would be no better place to do is to do the Tom Woods. And when I started this thing off, I'm like, let's do Tom Woods. Let's do this. And I'm like, 2,300 episodes. So what did we do? I said, we'll do in honor of Tom Woods, we'll do the Tom Woods week. Okay. Which he does. He has, you know, episodes and we have talked about this. So if you've caught episodes one and two of this one, day one and two, we're just going to keep rolling along. Um, day one, we had episodes one through 460. Uh, I didn't play all those clips. Uh, day two, I kind of split those things up. Uh, then the next episode, which we're going to do today, is episodes 461 through 920, um, featuring all kinds of greats. Now, going through this myself, there's so many great episodes in here Tom has been doing. Uh, so I do encourage you to, to kind of take a, a a shot at some of reviewing those yourself, but um, you know we we ended last time with Stefan Kinsella and Michael Malice on his first episode appearance. I think Dave Smith had his as well. So why don't we go in there first of all? Oh, we'll just we'll just hit hit it out here. Uh, we'll start with this one. This one is, and I thought it was important to hit some of the giants. Okay, uh, Lou Walk Rockwell been on his show a bunch. Um. Episode 463, Lou Rockwell and Tom Woods discuss the GOP debate. And what's interesting about this one, and this is what, you know, for the most part, Tom has a lot of evergreen shows. Uh, I was listening to a bunch of, uh, more today as I was <laughs> working out in the yard and uh, building this giant gazebo, um, not a 900 pound, it might've been 900 pounds. I don't know, but you know, some of you might know that reference. Um, but anyway, building this giant gazebo and I was just listening to a bunch of Tom Woods. I was building it yesterday too. That's why my face looks like I may be an alcoholic, but it, in, in reality, it's just um, an alcoholic and um, sunburn, mostly sunburn. That's, <laughs> we'll, we'll start with that because I really don't drink that much. Um, okay, so Tom Woods, um, great, great stuff. Lou Rockwell comes on, and what's so amazing about some of these is he has Lou on back through 2016. Um, he has him on, and they talk about the debates. So these are the debates when uh, I think it's the very first debate we have here with with Trump. We're gonna play a few clips. By the way, you're like, oh, this is old news. No, it's interesting because it's fun to look back. I just was listening to one today. I think we're going to get to it in day three or four. Uh, and it was an Owen Benjamin interview. And Owen Benjamin says in there, talks about, I, I think he's changed a lot. And I want to actually push back into to Ben, uh, Owen Benjamin and say, how much of this interview have you changed? Because uh, I think for the most part, he's still the same whether he talked about Tom. But what's interesting is he says things like, oh, I was listening to Ben Shapiro. I loved Ben Shapiro's podcast. <laughs> I wonder if that still holds true. I think Ben uh, Owen Benjamin has really uh, gone one direction. Uh, not in a bad way, necessarily. I don't know. Um, I'm just saying he's he's shifted. We, we all ball shifted um, to some extent, right, everybody? Okay, uh, let's start this out. Oops, uh, stop the screen. We want to share the screen, people. Okay, Lou Rockwell on Tom Woods' show. This was episode 463. Tom Woods, Lou Rockwell and Tom Woods discuss the GOP debate. Um, we'll start this right off. Let's go, uh, when was this one? Seven years ago. So I think this was well, 2016 election. So probably 2015, let's go. But I thought that uh, Trump did okay. Um, uh, Charles Krauthammer, the neocon with a wonderful Dickensian name, um, said, Trump collapsed, he's through, he's over, he's gone. Uh, I, I don't think that's right. And I think Trump, as I say, Trump did okay. To me, the startling thing was how badly Bush did. You know, this was a guy we're told uh, who was uh, going to be the presumptive candidate and he raised all this money. He still looks like baby Huey. I mean, he's, you know, I, I never thought that I would say that uh, somebody makes George W. Bush look good 
that's that's a Jeb Bush. See, that's why I took this as a slight victory for Jeb Bush, actually, because my expectations of what he would be like were so low because of George <laughs> W. Bush that the fact that he can memorize his lines and deliver them convincingly seemed pretty good to me. Well, you know, I think there's no question he's got a higher IQ than George W., <laughs> but he doesn't have his – he's got no presence. I mean, he's a tall guy, so that's good. Uh, he's as tall as Trump, and um, so he's got a good presence in that sense, but – it's it's he he still really comes across I think as an empty suit, um, as so many of these guys do. And and uh, uh, Christie uh, did very badly. You know, one uh, percent in the in the Drudge poll, and I think that's about it. And he had uh, some run-ins with Rand Paul. Uh, Rand, uh, uh, as I think was the conventional wisdom, had to go on the attack last night because he's had such a horrendous summer in terms of plummeting polls and uh, terrible fundraising and so forth. So he started right off by attacking uh, Trump for the fact. And because it was a setup question by Fox, uh, oh my gosh, here you are on a Republican platform. Do you mean to tell me that you're not going to pledge to to uh, totally support any Republican who's nominated? And he said he would not. Um, so the all the functionaries in the room booed him. But otherwise, all these people are telling us, hey, we have to reach across the aisle. We have to be bipartisan. We can't just be partisan. And uh, the, the people at Fox, the people in that hall, I think, don't realize that regular Republicans, GOP primary voters, hate the GOP. Okay, I. Great stuff there. Uh, by the way, that was kind of a setup of how did they all do? And I think it was great to hear Lou, especially when you listen to this whole episode, which I can't play. Otherwise, we just sit here and walk through 2,300 episodes and play them all out. I'm just playing clips here. But what was interesting is he's, um, you know, you may think, oh, you hear the, the, the stereotypes about Lou Rockwell, some sort of right wing crazy has storm front or whatever that Patriot front or storm something advertising on his website, whatever. Um, he's not some sort of wacky right winger. Okay. He's your typical end cap. And, uh, he does take on some of these people, uh, with a lot of fervor and, um, disgust as well. So, um, anyway, this is, uh, Rand needed to distinguish himself on this clip uh, of the debate. Let's go. You know, skilled they are as speakers. I I don't, I don't like Mike Huckabee, but he's got a stage presence, oh, yeah. and he doesn't trip over his words. He's effective. He connects with his, with his base very well. Uh, if Rand's not prepared to do that, and if the only way he's going to distinguish himself is by yelling out of turn at Donald Trump, that's not a debate strategy. Well, it uh, would have been nice to hear him say, you know, to defend private property rights. He got in trouble earlier in the campaign, and, uh, of course, his dad always had just a magnificent way of phrasing things, too. Uh, and he did – it's one of the areas in which he had a huge educational effect on young people because uh, they never heard such a thing, of course. They always, without really thinking about it, accepted the idea that, that the forced interactions uh, were moral. And uh, when he explained to them from an economic standpoint and from a moral standpoint and a political standpoint uh, why this was disastrous, uh, he changed people's minds, changed their hearts. Uh, and I still notice that effect, of course, in not only in that issue but in many, many other issues that run – had a permanent effect on so many people. Whether anybody on that stage is going to be in that same category, I, I frankly don't think so. Let's say a little something about Trump. I expected him to mop the floor with everybody, and he really didn't. I thought there were some of his answers that sounded uh, very conventional, or at least yes. in politician speak, and demagogic in a dumb way. And not demagogic because he's talking about immigration per se, per se but just because they, it was just, we need to do this, and this country doesn't work, and we're losing, and this and that. So I thought that was unfortunate and i thought he came off kind of looking like the caricature he's been portrayed as which is that he's he's got no substance he's got no specifics he's just a clown and unfortunately for him i think 
a bit of that came through last night. He, he didn't have, and secondly, he didn't really go on the attack. I thought the yep. way that he would really distinguish himself was by saying, look, you know, this one just gave you a pretty speech, but let me tell you the truth about this guy. I don't think he maybe had that information at his fingertips. He also seemed to me slightly nervous. I know that's a very odd criticism to make of Donald Trump, but he was uncomfortable, and, uh, and of course they were after him, but that could hardly have been a surprise to him. So I think he did say some good things. He said that uh, he was the only guy on stage to have opposed the Iraq war and to have predicted that it would be a total disaster and would destabilize the whole Middle East, and of course... Exactly, and, and apparently that didn't hurt him in the dredge poll any. No, no, and I also liked it when uh, the, the evil Megyn Kelly was uh, listing all the terrible things he did, all his terribly alleged uh, sexist remarks, and he said, uh, uh, well, I only said that about Rosie O'Donnell, and... <laughs> okay, we can all remember that good stuff. So some good uh, quality little clip stuff in there. Look, um, I... I remember doing this when I first found uh, the fifth column and I started, okay, I'm going to go to the beginning and, and watch it. Now the election had already happened. So it was interesting to go through and hear kind of their breakdown. And that's sometimes this is fun. You already know the outcomes, go back and listen and and you can learn some things like what this analysis is at the time and what it actually means. Did Lou get some things right? I'm not saying about Lou, but it, sometimes you can um, in your own life of like you, you take things to be true and what they're going to happen, how people are going to react to Trump as an example. And maybe that's not quite the word. Okay. Uh, this was interesting because this is Lou Rockwell taking on Reagan conservative uh, comments and, you know, Rand Paul basically calling himself that. And, um, you know, once again, uh, for whatever your thoughts are about uh, Lou Rockwell, this may not uh, could comport with that. Uh, take it away, Lou. I mean, that's uh uh, that's a good thing. I did notice that Rand, I've uh, never heard him say this before, defined himself as a Reagan conservative. Uh, that's, yeah. that's what he said. Uh, and of course, as we know, Reagan was a monster. I mean, he was a warmonger. He would raise taxes six times. He vastly increased the deficit, vastly increased spending, vastly increased uh, government intrusion into our lives, vastly increased surveillance. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure what Rand means, I'm a Reagan conservative in the rhetorical Reagan sense. That Reagan, yeah, Reagan right, said right, some right, good but things, but Reagan didn't do anything good. Yeah, and the trouble is, I, I, I understand the reason that he made that reference there. Uh, it was to say that Reagan was not as much of a warmonger as you people. I, I understand that limited reason. The, the trouble is, everybody on the stage is a Reagan conservative. So again, why do I pick this one, who sounds a little bit off to me on, on some things, and I've got a whole stage full of Reagan conservatives I can, I can uh, go for? So th there's that. Did you Okay, I, I just thought that was some interesting. Once again, it was, it was fascinating to kind of sit back, listen to kind of the 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 display, the analysis. And by the way, I, I think I misstated because um, I've listened to so many of these. Uh, Dave Smith's first time on here, he references, and we're going to play it up here in a little bit. Um, he references, and uh, once again, I have clips of it. He references uh, this debate and actually this uh, episode here. So I thought it was uh, kind of you know, something we can uh, put all into. Okay. Um, once again, these are just some of the highlights that I, I have come through here. This is episode 467, The Truth About Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and Other Myths uh, Refuted. This is uh, FEE, F-E-E, um, Foundation of Economic uh, Education, I think. Uh, Larry Reed, I think it's uh, the, not Lou Reed, but his dad, whoever the Reed was, that the eye pencil and all that stuff, um, is now in charge of. So uh, I, I found this one to be there's so many good, fascinating ones, right? <clears throat> but this one, uh, I, I remember reading, you know, my wife even read this one in college, uh, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, talking about the meat packing, that there's, you know, humans being degraded, and that comes up with, uh, you know, regulations that are started by the FDA or the, the government from this. We'll talk about it. But I first heard about this from uh, Glenn Beck, crazy Glenn Beck, uh, a few years ago, talking about how 
Upton Sinclair's estate was being auctioned off. And in there, there was all kinds of uh, communication about this, I think to his attorney at the time. And they're basically admitting that he just made all this shit up, that he was just, you know, ends justify the means type of thing. So uh, without further ado, let's start in with Upton Sinclair. Um, This is Larry Reed uh, talking about it. Tell us about the jungle, Mr. Reed. Okay, here we go. Uh, by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle came out very early in the last century and it uh, was first serialized in a magazine published by the Socialist Party and then later put together in a book uh, called The Jungle and it rather quickly created a sensation uh, largely because of fewer than a dozen pages which purported to describe conditions in the meatpacking plants in Chicago and uh, as the book describes them of course they were horrendous uh, uh, people falling into the vats and being ground up with uh, with meat and and sold as sausage or Durham's pure leaf lard <laughs> and that kind of thing. Just yeah. horrendous conditions. Well, it turns out that even though it was accepted by so many people, propagandists in particular, as gospel, uh, it was rooted in myth and misconception and propaganda. The book was written by Upton Sinclair uh, because he was paid $500 by uh, the socialists to write a tract or a book uh, that uh, made a case for socialism, and so he had to smear capitalism with all the uh, uh, vitriol that he could muster, and he hardly spent any time at all in the meatpacking plants. This is all f- fiction. In fact, you have to wonder, as I mentioned in uh, the chapter in the, uh, in the book, you have to wonder if the stories about people, workers in particular, falling into those vats were true. Well, who were those people? I mean, they would be folk heroes to the right. left today, <laughs> you know, martyrs to the cause, and we'd all know their names and be mm-hmm. statues to, to the men who fell in those vats and were ground up as, uh, and sold as meat. But, of course, nobody can give any names. That, that is an excellent point. I never thought of that. Yeah, you, we would know these people. Yeah, you'd think somebody would have said, hey, what happened to Bob? You know, or, hey, Jim didn't come <laughs> home from work uh, today. <laughs> but this sure is a delicious sausage I'm having. I'm, so, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I don't man. mean to make light of it, but that's what we're told in school, yeah. right? I mean, it's not. I'm not making this stuff up. That's, Right, I could go for a good hot dog right now. Yeah, nothing better than a baseball game and a hot dog. Um, now those, not afterwards, because that's easy. I, I digress. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. One very good point. You know, that's Andy and I uh, are reading through. Uh, it's called the Respondent. It's this guy's uh, whole thing about. And I'll get to it later when we talk about um, men's rights in court and stuff. And so I'm reading it as a family law attorney. I'm reading through it and I'm like, wait, wait a second. A lot is not making sense here and and, it's, and you see all these interviews with him and everyone just takes their face value and i'm like sometimes there's holes may you don't have to be an expert in this situation but this is a great one um all these people grind where yeah where where'd my husband go you think he would have and that was so uh fantastic and interesting because it's sometimes the simple questions is all you need to do uh to get this so uh once again uh we'll see keep going on the truth about upton sinclair and other myths this one is uh another myth that's all i uh wrote down with here uh, larry reed well, another myth related to this is that there wasn't any government meat inspection before Upton Sinclair wrote his book, and then uh, which led in turn to the Meat Inspection Act of 1906. There was government meat inspection, federal, state, and local. And as they pointed out in uh, congressional hearings over the Meat Inspection Act of 1906, what does that say about the inspection that was already in existence? Either mm. the government inspectors were asleep at the switch, uh, or uh, corrupted in some way, or the stories that Sinclair wrote up were in fact total fiction. Even Teddy Roosevelt uh, attacked uh, Upton Sinclair as a liar 
And I quote him in the book uh, as pointing out that almost nothing he wrote was actually true. And in the end, when the Meat Inspection Act of 06 passed, it enjoyed the support of the meat packers themselves because they saw the uh, uh, imprimatur of the federal government being stamped on their uh, product as uh, helping them recover lost markets because of Sinclair's propaganda. But more importantly, uh, that bill took the uh, meat packers off the hook for paying for the inspection and certification of their own processes and instead shifted the, the, the bill to the taxpayers. So they said, sure, we're for this. Which, by the way, is almost invariable. I mean, you know, I own a business. Um, things start, you know, inflation starts happening. What do I do? I might raise my hourly rate. Uh, there's all kinds of things. Credit card processing does a fee. I raise the rate a little bit. Um, it, it happens. You pass it along because you've got to be always making your nut, so to speak. Okay. Um, uh, that's episode 467. The truth about Upton Sinclair is the jungle. Another myth. There's a lot of actually great stuff in there. I think he talks about some education and, and uh, other things, about young people and whatnot. But we're moving along. And one of the things you love about Tom Woods, at least me personally, as someone who does love prog rock, I love all kinds of stuff. I even love, you know, like, like this, Depeche Mode, right? But I also love... Is there... Is that not a, there we go. <laughs> Prog Rock, uh, open car. Um, so I, I, one thing, I, he does a lot of episodes on that. And this one is uh, Neil Pert. Today's Tom Sawyer, episode 511. Neil Pert, Rush and Liberty with Brad Bircher. Brad Bircher, uh, been on here before talking about Prog Rock. He's on here several times. Um, his historian, I believe, uh, doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to get right into this one. Um, and, and this episode is... Neil Pert just recently passed away. So when they wrote this book, or he wrote a book about it, and when he um, did this episode, Tom Woods and uh, Brad Bircher, Neil Pert was still alive. Matter of fact, Neil Pert, he had contacted him. Uh, Brad had had some insight and some connections, contacted him. Neil was not at all interested in, in this kind of stuff. But he's a fantastic drummer, uh, Rush. Everyone's like libertarian, Rush. I mean, you know, it, we've, we've talked about these things. So um, let's talk about, why why neil pert ready go start off with the obvious question why would you write a book about a rock drummer well yeah and of course that's the logical and very good question tom i i have spent you know all of my professional career i have written biography that's all i've done uh, i've done a you know i'd say i've done a few things outside of that but even when i do things that aren't quite bi biographical they're still biographical and i have personally found and this comes from my own love of hayek and my own love of methodological individualism, I will say that properly. Um, I think it's really important, and you know, love of personalism. I think it's incredibly important that scholars in the humanities, not necessarily the social sciences, but in the humanities, I think it's really important that we take seriously our belief that the individual matters. So biography has always been a way that I can kind of live that belief I have out in my own work. And most of the things that I've done in terms of biography have been on these very highbrow figures. So, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, who, of course, was the greatest scholar of Middle English and Old English in his day, uh, I've written on one of the founding fathers. And so a, a lot of what I've done, almost all of it, has been highbrow. And I kind of wanted to make the case that because Neil Pert is an extremely popular person, we should not dismiss him as not highbrow. That, in fact, with the music of Rush, though it's hard and it's progressive and it's, you know, at times extremely heavy and throbbing, that, in fact, it really does have a lot to it. And that, in fact, one of the reasons that Neil Peart is so popular is simply because he doesn't dumb down his ideas for his audience. The music is as complex as his ideas are. 
Okay, so I, I've tried to get into Rush over the years, and there's definitely some songs I like, some I don't. I do like prog rock, but um, I, the point is very talented. Uh, Getty, uh, Neil Peart, they're they're fantastic. And I remember um, not too long ago. I, I mean, I think they've been in, instrumental in some people finding liberty. Uh, Matt Kibbe has done did a whole. Um, I don't know a documentary on it, but a, an episode where basically he talks about music and he really gets into it and how Kibbe on Liberty, he's on the blaze, but he's libertarian and how he was, uh, what is it? The 2120, I'm trying to remember the album number, uh, episode or title, uh, that has mentions Ayn Rand in there and we'll get kind of to some of this. And so then he found Ayn Rand from this. So objectivism. And then, you know, it all started with Ayn Rand type of thing where she's not a libertarian, but she definitely moved some people into uh, the libertarian sphere due to that. Okay. Um, is this an Ayn Rand band? That's uh, the question uh, posed to uh, Brad Bircher. By the way, Brad, great guy, a lot of information, not so easy to grab clips from sometimes because he does uh, go on. Let's, anyway. let's try and draw them in by talking about what people have often tried to, uh, uh, the way they've often tried to describe Rush, which is that they are influenced by Ayn Rand, which is an oversimplification that they've tried to tiptoe away from ever since, but it's not altogether misplaced. Why don't you talk about that for a while because you spend a lot of time in the book on it. Yeah, it's, uh, there's always been that characterization and it's because in 1976 in their breakthrough album, which was 2112, and it was, they, they would go on to sell sorry. much bigger albums, but up to that point, they had not sold that well. They had sold, in a, you know, uh, respectively. But with that album, that is what really, that's where their reputation just boomed. And I, I think there are a lot of reasons behind it. It is an album about an anthem. It's about a young man who discovers beauty. It, it's, in many ways, it's a rewrite of the Fountainhead, but also there's a lot of, of uh, anthem in it as well, Ayn Rand's anthem. But it's, you know, they're young. They're probably 21, 22 when they write that album. And they had been on the verge of losing their record deal because their previous three albums had not sold as well as the company wanted. And so they decided, and I think this is one of their greatest moments in their history, the three of them decided that they would make the art they wanted to make. And they would not in any way cater to the fashions of the time. They would not listen to the record company. They would not listen to what DJs were asking for, which was three-minute songs. And so what they did, which is just, I mean, it's brilliant in hindsight, but it's amazing that it worked. They write you know, one, the whole opening side to the album is one song, and it's a very complex science fiction story about a man against the state, about a man who is willing to accept death, even at the loss, well, obviously he loses his life, but if he can't have his liberty, he accepts death. And it's a powerful, powerful story. But the entire thing has the feel of the overture of 1812. Okay, yeah, got to check out that whole episode of yourself for that. Uh, the next one we say, okay, because he, he, the question was, <laughs> is this an Ayn Rand band? And uh, he kind of didn't really answer the question, um, but uh, finally does get back to it. So, um, okay, so Ayn Rand. Now, what happens when you ask band members, hey, you guys are basically just influenced by Ayn Rand, right? What do they say? Yeah, thanks, Tom. We should go back to that because I, right. I kind of went off on that patriotic moment about seven, uh, 1976. So they had, Neil had read Rand. He actually encountered, if I remember right, it was a copy of The Fountainhead. He was living in, in England in 1971. He didn't join Rush until 1974. And the band had already been together six years by the time he joined. They had had a, a drummer, John Rutsey. Right when they had gotten their first record deal on a, on a, a North American tour, John Rutsey had to be kind of taken out. Uh, there were some problems with drugs and alcohol, and he was a diabetic who wasn't taking care of himself. It was a really sad situation. He's since passed away. But they needed to hire Neil, and they, and they need to hire someone, and they hired Neil in August of 1974. When he came to them, he had 
read everything imaginable. And this is where you can't just say he's a Randian. Uh, he had read Hemingway, loved Hemingway. Yeah, he had read all the great authors of the 1920s, Fitzgerald. He was very taken with modernist literature, Mark, everything from Mark Twain to the present. Yeah, Philip Roth, everything. And Rand, he found a copy of The Fountainhead on a bench in the London Tube Station when he was there in 1971. Again, very, he would have been, what, 18, 19 at this point. Picked it up, loved it. But I wouldn't say he really loved it any more than he loved a lot of other things he was writing, but he found in The Fountainhead really an inspiration to kind of you know, to, to follow Howard Rourke and to say, I need to do my own art and whether I make money from it or whether you know, I get rich from it or whether I'm hated for it, I've got to do this. So that was really the great inspiration for him. It's always, by the way, great story. It's always interesting when really talented people and successful people say, I just I just did it for the love. I, I threw everything to the wind and I committed and look, it worked out for me. There's a lot of stories of those people out there that tried this uh, and didn't succeed. So uh, American Idol, everybody. <laughs> it happens uh, not to take any away from I mean, that's that's what we love though is people that are talented and they've got this and they do succeed and i, I love that kind of story so um good for neil pert uh r.i.p for him especially okay so we're gonna we're gonna move on because this one this next one is uh the first episode of the dave smith part of the problem um this was episode 526 making people think without bashing them over the head with comic Dave Smith. Okay. And so we're going to play maybe extra clips of this one because I'm a big Dave Smith fan. He's what kind of got me into the Tom Woods show. He's been on this show and uh, we do appreciate him um, because he said, Hey, I'm a fan of this show. I don't know why he would say that, but uh, thanks again, Dave Smith. Maybe you could get Tom Woods to come on the show. I, I should probably reach out to Tom Woods. <laughs> That'd be your number one. Tyler, are you doing this simply to get clout and to uh, maybe get Tom Woods on your show or to go on Tom Woods show? I don't know if that helps. It helps if it uh, if it doesn't. Um, I still I've just enjoyed this. And this is my goal. A lot of times is to play these things. OK, so uh, Dave, who Dave, Dave, who Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, Tom? Thanks so much for having me. Dave, you realize there's a lot of pressure when you're a comedian as a guest on somebody's <laughs> podcast, right? I mean, I'm expecting you to carry the whole darn show. Like, people are already like, this guy isn't that funny. <laughs> yeah, he's not funny. Like, True. I've been listening for 10 seconds. I haven't heard any jokes. <laughs> All right. I, I want to introduce you to people. I knew a little bit about you, and I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't tell you this before we went on, but I knew a little bit about you, and then I, uh, I checked out some of the the podcast and I thought it's not really quite my style, <laughs> but, but then I thought, you know, there are a lot of things that aren't totally my style that I still you know, can find room for, and I know we're making, you know, ma making a difference in their own way. So what the heck? So the, you know, what the, the not heck? your style would be what the like incessant cursing. Yeah, that would, pretty pretty much. <laughs> that would be pretty. See, that's what I that's that's what I do uh, when I'm not recording. Okay, fair when enough. I am recording. No, 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 no. But although I mean, well, it depends on how outraged I am about something. But by and large, it's it's how I used to be, but I'm not anymore. Okay. So uh, as as we get started, I want you to introduce yourself to people. I want I want people to know uh, who you are. I'm gonna I'm gonna. Talk about how you came to hold your views and stuff. We'll do that separately. Sure. But who you are and how you make your living. Do you, in fact, make your living full-time by being funny? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I, I mean, I, make, I basically, at this point, I split making my living between stand-up comedy, where I make a little bit in, in the city. I do, like, the club scene, and then I go out on the road, and I'll make a little bit more money working the road. I also, I, I, it's split basically between stand-up comedy and podcasting. I have a couple podcasts. I have one that's on the Anthony Cumia network. Uh, I don't know if you know who he Cumia. is, but he was uh, part of a big oh, Gavin McGinnis is on his yes, network. I, I, oh, hey. Gavin McGinnis also is on his network. Yeah, so we make some money off that. That, some money off the stand-up stuff. I do a little bit of radio stuff here and there, a little bit of TV stuff for Fox News. So kind of like yourself, I make you know some of my money on online content, 
and then just kind of hustling around. I have a few different sources of revenue coming in. It's, by the way, the, so this is his first episode here. It's similar to the Michael Malice where you can immediately see that there's this bond taking place uh, and this good experience. Uh, by the way, very, very proud of Dave Smith, who, you know, when I podcast, now he's on Gash Digital, obviously with Lewis and uh, Jay Gomez and, and, and has the, the shows there. Uh, he's obviously, he, you know, talking about buying a house. He's doing, he's made, and his wife's not having to work. These are amazing things. And I love to see the success of someone like this doing these things. Do I contribute to Dave Smith? Um, yes, I pay to have access to Gas Digital. It's like seven bucks a month. It's like nothing. Do I do that for Tom Woods? Not yet, but you had come on my show or I go on yours. Uh, then we, we can talk about it. Um, I, I do pay way too much for the shows, but this is, I don't pay for cable. So this is the kind of the, the entertainment aspect. Okay. Who cares? Uh, here's uh, next episode uh, or no, sorry. Next clip, Dave being Dave. This is what, uh, the Dave Smith, uh, that we love and know, uh, does so well, um, uh, makes comedy, makes a uh, good conversation. Killing and- in any capacity, whether it's like giving a speech or being funny or whatever, it's great to get up there, risk that, put your ideas out in front of people and get that reward i remember your one of your favorite moments ever that i that i love watching is that it's on youtube that speech you gave i think it's in las vegas the one where you kind of you go into the end about being anti-war and it's a very kind of pro-war crowd oh los angeles, los angeles yeah. i'm sorry yeah and, uh, yeah, yeah and then by the end you've got them like cheering for you and that's a great feeling so i, I feel the same way when i do kind of like liberal any comedy i do that's challenging liberals or their worldview you go in very much as in the stand-up comedy world as being kind of like ooh, what's he doing here but not all your comedy is political, is it? No, but I do talk about that a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll make jokes about anything, but, you know, I'm, I'm just such a passionate libertarian that that's kind of seeped into everything in life. But yet I've seen enough stand-up to know that it seems like if you just attack politicians in general, everybody feels like it's okay. Like only the real partisans will say, now, wait a minute, I like Joe Biden. You know? <laughs> right, well, that's for sure. Well, only real partisans like Joe Biden, Perry. So yeah, that's just, a good point, too. Just leave yeah. it with that. But, yeah, but I, I'll go more at just attacking the way liberals think about government, the way uh, attacking that liberals really themselves are the privileged one. I like to talk about uh, the contempt for free markets and capitalism that liberals have and how funny it is that you could only feel that way if you're really privileged. Like you could only, if you walk through Times Square and you think to yourself like, man, the consumerism and the marketing, this is terrible. Just realize that no one from Central Africa would come here and look around and be like, oh my God, is this CEO making a profit? I'm disgusted. You know, they would just be like, food, yes, food. And I don't exactly. even have to catch it or hunt it. This is incredible. Uh, what 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 is actually great is if you listen to Dave's comedy or his show his stuff over the years, you can see that. I mean, let me just tell you, he goes on on Tom Woods and he uses he's first of all super smart. Uh, I'm fanboying here a little bit, but you can tell Dave is maybe like me to Dave, right? With Tom Woods, where he's talking about oh, and this is what I mean. Dave being Dave, he goes on Tom Woods. He talks about Tom Woods' own speeches. He references again here. We're gonna play it probably. Um, some one of his uh, favorite little lines from Tom Woods. It's like when he goes on on Glenn Beck and he mentions things that Glenn Beck talks about all the time, which is the the hate of Woodrow Wilson uh, and, and things like the progressive era, which Dave knows very well. So he does just ingratiates himself to these people, which is fabulous. Uh, did I do that with Dave when he came on the show? I don't know. And I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I should have learned a, a thing or two about that. But I thought that was uh, fantastic what Dave did there. And by the way, if back up just a tad bit, Dave, a lot like that right there. That's a that's a comedy bit that Dave has done. So he has a lot of the things that Tom 
throws out there. Dave can just immediately go into, especially his first time there. He just kind of sat back and relied on some of his comedy that he's done with this. And he just spits this out and it's uh, fabulous. And Tom Woods is giggling like a little schoolgirl, and uh, rightly so. Um, uh, wonderful. So I, I don't know. Does that um, mean that you, uh, something you can learn from there? Yeah. Do a few hours of stand up and then uh, go on Tom Woods and kill it. Uh, okay. This next one is new material. I don't know what that means. Let's go. Uh, so I talk about a lot of topical stuff, and then you just kind of get rid of that. So you know, uh, just I don't know, just examples off, off the top of my head. But like when, um, do you remember? By the way, I'm just I'm playing this at 1.25 speed. Dave is talking extra fast because I think he's just he's in the zone. He's loving that the fact that it's episode 526 here, the Tom Woods show. He listens to it every day. He's super stoked that he's on there. He's getting he's just killing it. You could tell when you're in the zone and everything's coming in there. And he's like me. He's just talking faster and faster and faster. And you're almost to normal speed of Ben Shapiro. But here we go. Remember. Uh, at Nelson Mandela's funeral when there was that fake sign language translator. Yeah, 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 so yeah. I had like for a couple months, I had this whole long bit on that guy. But now at this point, it's just kind of like, hey, who who cares that yeah. there was a fake sign language translator <laughs> for years right. ago? Who, oh, but it, it must hurt to have to give that bit up. It's not, I mean, the man was a sign language translator who made it to the top without learning sign language. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's I had that for a little piece of time and now it's gone. Sure, but that's what keeps you on your toes. And now I got to write something about how hilarious Bernie Sanders is and how the guy who just got pulled out of my Jewish grandpa's pinochle game probably isn't going to be the next president, you know? <laughs> okay. So I thought what we would do then is uh, give Dave a little uh, props, uh, play a little bit from his uh, fake. And by the way, this is a clip. My, my kids actually love this. And I have four kids, uh, two in college. One is a high school senior. One is a high school junior. Uh, to them all, they they love when the fake sign language thing. They love the Dave Smith um, comedy, a Libertas. It's it's pretty fantastic. Uh, all the kids have listened to it and laughed. General genuinely, this is the fake sign language translator. This whole little segment. This is a five minute thing on on YouTube. We're just gonna play. Uh, what do I got here? Like uh, forty five seconds. After someone tells you it's fake, then you look back at it and you're like. Yeah, that's fucking bullshit. Like, that's not sign language. That's not a word. This guy's doing like the Vogue dance from that Madonna video. Can't be words. But until they tell you, you don't know. Anyway, deaf people were furious. Furious. One, because they didn't know what was being said. But two, as I learned, uh, fake sign language is offensive to deaf people. I didn't know that, but that's like their blackface. So don't, don't. Unless you want trouble in the deaf community, I'd say stay away from fake sign language. That's my advice to you. Uh, <laughs> their blackface. Uh, Dave, Dave Smith is genuinely a good stand-up comedian. I don't know why I have to emphasize that because he's so good at this political stuff. Uh, but if you've gone and seen him live, um, he does fantastic work and I, I do encourage uh, everybody to go see him and Robbie uh, the fire they've been out in the, the road quite a bit okay let's keep going here with Dave Smith this one is uh, how about Tom Tom why don't you do stand yeah. up but, uh, but all the same not everybody it's not just a matter of learning the craft not everybody is cut out to do what you're doing and, and it, it impresses those of us who are not cut out for I have people saying to me sometimes because they like the jokes in my speeches that I should do stand up and they don't understand these are two entirely different genres. Well, you know there's I'll tell you there's a video of Peter Schiff doing stand up at, I heard. At the comic strip, which is a club that I've, I've played for years uh, here in New York City. Wow, that is good. And Peter's a funny guy. I think you're very funny, too. You may, I, And I love, uh, like, I, I, I often use, I mean, I give you credit, but I use a lot of your analogies. Like, I love the Walmart school thing. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah. That's one of the best analogies that's, I've ever come that's up incredible. with. That's incredible. I'll tell you another one that I think is amazing that you don't use enough. But I heard, I forget where I heard you say this, but this is one of your best analogies ever. Is, oh, okay. uh, is the, the idea of the drone campaign, if we just policed America that way. 
Like, you know, we were just like, okay, so in Chicago, uh, some suspected criminals broke into a school. So we're going to drone bomb the school. Oh, that's right. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, but, but isn't that not an option? Like, no. Yeah, like, w- wouldn't that be, like, that wouldn't even be, like, 1,000th on the list of things <laughs> yeah. you would consider. Yeah, well, that you would think, of, you know, you'd bring in a hostage guy. Like, you'd think of something. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Have, like, wait a minute. Have we exhausted every single other possible option? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Because uh, now I remember them. Because as you were describing it, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to embarrass poor Dave and say, the reason I don't use that one enough is that I have no idea what you're talking about. I never said oh. that. But I did actually say that. Yes. Okay. I do, I do remember that. Ah, good stuff. Uh, and by the way, that, that that's if I were to go on Tom Woods' show, uh, cross the finger, this hint. No, uh, it, it, my my point is not that. My point is, if I were to go on there, I, like I'm listening to this, sometimes the fans know more <laughs> what you've said than uh, you do. So uh, that that kind of was uh, evident here with Dave Smith on that uh, one. Okay, um, let's go to the next one. This one is what do we got here. Show about coming out of the closet what <laughs> wait what uh who's the who's the gay guy here okay that i'm in a very like a lot of my listeners are just people who listen to comedy podcasts in general who know me from other stuff like the stuff over at the anthony cumia network other other shows that i do guess and i try to just kind of provoke their own thinking you know with, with what kind of our worldviews are on at least on politics and stuff like that and, and get them interested in that and just have a conversation so that's kind of what we do I, i'm very interactive with uh the fans there's there's a segment where i take listener comments and respond to anybody's you know uh problems with the idea of anarcho by the way that's how dave got in the problem with 12 shots was taking a question about uh consenting after drinking capitalism and i'll, I'll do things like so on, on my last episode what I did was we just played because I was getting a lot of people kind of asking, like, why I'm being so hard on Rand or why I'm so disappointed by his campaign. So we just played audio clips of his answers at debates and then played clips of Ron Paul answers. Wow. At debates. Oh, very and interesting. I think, very I think interesting. by the end of it, there's no question why someone would be more passionately supporting Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've, I've talked about this on the show. Boy, we, we got some pushback in the third of the debates uh, when Lou and I uh, did the analysis. And I went back and listened and everything we said is a thousand percent defensible. So I don't, no, I, I don't know what the sensitivity here is. All, I loved it. And those are, are some of my favorite episodes. And, and by the way, I listen to the show religiously. And those are like, I think some of my favorite episodes are, are anytime Lou Rockwell is on. By the way, Lou Rockwell is such a hero in this movement and does not get anywhere near the credit he does. Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, he's a boss just in the way he handles himself. Just everything about the guy. He's like, look, if I had to li- like list heroes in this movement, it- it's like Don't Mises and Rothbard and Ron oh, Paul just okay. are, are at the top. And then it's Lou Rockwell. That's it. Yeah, the guy I, created the absolutely. Mises Institute. He's the reason why we're all able to do what we do. And um, yeah. and they've made him such a like shady, controversial. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's the most unjustly maligned person I know of. And and believe me, <laughs> I know a lot of unjustly maligned. I am an unjustly yes, maligned yes. person. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm, my family is Jewish and my, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. So that very much like plays a role in, in my family's history. And I remember when I when I first like, came out of the closet to my mother that like I was a libertarian probably for a full year before I told her like, hey, I'm a libertarian. I've been completely convinced. Uh, and the first thing she said to me was, she goes, be careful. I think a lot of those guys are anti-Semites. Oh, and, wow. And, and it's just like this is just seeped into the culture. And I had to explain to her. I was like, Mom, the two people who they hold in the highest esteem are oh, and, Ludwig von yeah. Mises and Murray Rothbard. And you know what's funny, Dave, actually, is that if you if you actually read the real live anti-Semites, they hate libertarianism because they say it's a Jewish ideology. Well, that's right. That's- it is. <laughs> Okay, well there you go. I didn't I didn't know I was involved in a Jewish uh, ideology, but um, here we are. So come out of the closet on that one. Okay, the next uh, one is this is the last one. This is a kind of a comment he made about Michael Malice. Um, I don't think they had met yet, and you know the love affair of all three of these together. But um, here we go. 
Kennedy quite a bit on the Fox Business Network, but you've never been opposite Michael Malice? No, I have not. And I'll tell you. Ah, uh, we got to. If, if she's not going to make that happen, I'll have to make that happen right here I'm, on the I'm show. I'm going to be on. I'll be hanging out and I think doing some warm up for your debate with Michael Malice in New York City. Yeah, that's going to be fun. That's everybody. Oh, that's snap. December 3rd of this year. Uh, details on my events page, tomwoods.com slash events. If you're in the New York City area, we're going to be debating Alexander Hamilton. And then Dave will be there, too. I mean, come on. Why are too you much. not coming? If you're a libertarian and you're in New York, you got to be there. Now, I, I, yeah. there was a, I said, I, don't, I think I shared something on, on the Facebook page because I'm a proud member of the Tom Woods Show Elite. And I love that. You're the first guest I've ever had who's a supporting listener of the show. Wow. Awesome. awesome. I did not know. That's a nice feather in my cap. All right. I, so I, I, I think I, I posted something about the first time I met uh, Judge Napolitano on the show, and you said you should request to be opposite Michael Malice. So I said something to one of the producers at Kennedy. I go, oh, I'd love to be on with Michael. And she looked shocked. I mean, she said, you are the first person who's ever requested to be on with Michael Mallon. <laughs> I'm going to tell him that as soon as we finished it. <laughs> he was going to love that. <laughs> but no, I have I, I am very fascinated by his argument. I didn't you know, it's such an intriguing argument to me that he's making uh, about uh, Hamilton. So I'm very interested. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I mean, it's it, it's uh, he's totally sincere about it, too. He's not trolling. He absolutely believes it. But what I love about him is he's really he's even smarter than he seems. Oh, it's, and say and he knows it. <laughs> you know, there's no there isn't a problem yeah, with excessive that's, humility that's with, sure. with Michael Malice. But he always makes me think and he challenges me. But we really, really enjoy each other's company very much. And, and that that the fact that in 2006, he had a graphic novel written about his life. I mean, what by Harvey Picard? And it and it, I was totally absorbed by it. It's it's incredible. And there you go. So that uh, that's Dave Smith, his first uh, appearance on the Tom Woods show. Uh, what episode was that? Uh, 5:26. We're going to move ahead. Look, th this one was to me. I, I picked this out right away, partly because uh, Adam Kokesh, who we're going to have here, um, he's got something's happened to him lately. And I thought this would be interesting to kind of see where he was back several years ago. Um, he also was in a, a movie along, uh, alongside Night, 2014, gave an anti-war speech, kind of a big deal. What, what got me down a rabbit hole with this one as well is I saw him do an interview um, with uh, Steven Crowder at CPAC around the same time. And he was he was brilliant. He was great. Steven Crowder was a total dick and an asshole. What's your angle? Is what he kept saying. And 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 uh, there was nothing that um, Adam Kokesh was hiding. But remember, uh, Reno reset. I saw him out there. He seemed like a completely different man. He was on went on Clint Russell's show. Seemed completely uh, out of his gourd as well. I don't know what his deal is, but he's got a good history, and so it's really interesting. And let's go here. Uh, What's this one? Uh, Adam Kokesh on uh, the MAP and FT activist. Okay, I don't know what that uh, actually means, but that was my event. Am I, am I right? old movement already? Yeah, I, can you believe we're, we're like some of the, well, not quite elder statesmen, but we're not the young whippersnappers we used to be. But this was with the Capitol building at our back. We had this big event that Dr. Paul had more or less kind of asked for, and then people organized it. And it was great. I mean, I think maybe one of your more memorable and iconic speeches was delivered right there at that event, wouldn't you say? Well, it was really the one that put me on the map, if, if you will, with the yeah. movement. And I was there because I was representing, in a sense, Iraq veterans against the war and veterans for peace. Yeah. And that was how I really got started as a full-time activist. And I thought when Dr. Paul was running, the most important thing I could do to support him was represent the message within the anti-war movement. I think we won a lot of converts that way. I think we brought in a lot of new people. And it's funny because right now I am in my trailer where I live in Ernie Hancock's driveway, who was emceeing that event. And he's the only reason I got to speak. And man, I, this is really like taking it back to the, you know, making me feel like old movement, old hand activist here. But if it wasn't for Ernie standing up to Ron Paul's handlers saying, 
No, we're going to let Adam on stage, even though Michael Scheuer just took 20 minutes more than his allotted time. And I remember standing there on the side of the stage being so ready for this. I mean, I, I, I wrote that speech, you know, started uh, as soon as I found out I was booked for this event. And I worked on it every single day. I heard strangers on the subway in D.C. You know, I, I looked up every single word in that speech in the source. I had it totally memorized. And then it was like, really? Because Michael Scheuer wants to take a little extra time. I'm just going to get cut. And then Ernie stepped in and the, the energy was amazing. There were, you know, at least... Uh, you know, I just, it, the crowd was incredible. I think I lost track while I was giving my speech. I mean, it was only 10 minutes long. I, I was trying to count the crowd. And I, some people said it was, you know, 150-something thousand. I lost track at 148, 736, and then my speech was over. But it was, uh, it really was an amazing day. I, I'm not sure. Did he say, was he counting as he was giving the speech and he got up to 100-something thousand? <laughs> Something that doesn't jive. Uh, however, um, if you look, watch the movie Alongside Night, uh, Kevin Sorbo. It's a horrible movie. Uh, it's a good concept. And I think the book is probably better. Um, is it Samuel Conkin? One of those guys um, did it. Uh, anyway, um, I'll look it up here as we play the next clip. But uh, horrible movie, good idea, but just horribly acted. Uh, he's in there. He gives some sort of speech as well, kind of like your John Galt type of thing, uh, or anti-war speech. And I think it was based off of the, the speech he just talked about here. Um, okay. Uh, he was also detained in the, 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 the military. Uh there's some weird stuff that he's posted in a response recently about him bringing like remains back of Iraqis that he killed there and some weirdness. I don't know, maybe some war crimes, uh, either, <laughs> either way, uh, Adam Kokesh, uh, take it away. Did you get a master's degree? Am I remembering that right? Uh, most of one. I, it's never too late to drop out. You know, don't let your school and get in the way of your education. <laughs> after the Marines, uh, after I got in trouble there and spent a year at Camp Pendleton for bringing a pistol back from Fallujah in 2004, uh, I moved to D.C. to get a master's in political management. I had originally been majoring in government. The, the school I went to for undergrad is Claremont McKenna College, CMC, in Claremont, California. It's funny, when I say that fast, I wonder if I have a speech impediment because a lot of people go, oh, Claremont... What? Where? where I've actually been to Claremont McKenna. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, no. So they have this reverse snobbery of they have like one of the best political science departments in the country. So they call it the government department. And uh, I, I kind of wimped out. I got really interested in psychology. I went to Iraq and came back. And uh, you know, I, I didn't want to. I, I was like intimidated out of politics in, in a really weird way. And then after enough of, you know, my personal experiences, getting in trouble with the police, bringing a pistol back, um, you know, everything I went through with the Marines, like, I, I guess I was in a different mindset. And I was, I was ready to, I hate to use the cliche, take the bull by the horns, but I think that's what we are doing as a movement, in a sense. What we do as activists, when we see a potential better way forward for society, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines and say, well, someone else will take care of that. Well, someone else can deal with that. Well, we'll figure it out eventually. And it's like, no. You know, from from a purely capitalist self-interest perspective, like you have an opportunity to provide value to the world and maybe it comes with certain risks, but if anything, it makes it all the more incumbent on you to analyze those risks coolly and objectively without any of the emotional pressures that others would have uh, exercised upon you by the state or the, or the status quo or the momentum of society itself to keep you in line. Okay, so last one we'll do here. Uh, and there's some, it's a, like a famous uh, clip of him in a bar with some guy, some other vet um, and he kind of talks about it here. So I don't know if we can play the whole I thing. I saw a video go. of you not that long ago, and I don't know if you were at a bar, you were out somewhere. I think you know exactly yeah, what I'm driving. New Jersey, Linden, New Jersey, the stop on the American Campfire Freedom Tour with the former cop and soldier. Yeah, so you, in fact, you set it up. You tell people, I'm going to link to it. I want you to watch <laughs> this video. It's going to be at tomwoods.com/532. I, I bet there are people who would have thought that you would 
that you would blow your top in that situation, and you were you, you were cool as a cucumber, and I'm, I'm not going to take away the, the awesome ending. I want you to tell it. <laughs> well, when a dude has, you know, 80 pounds of muscle on you, it's really easy to keep your cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, that's true. But that was the case, and it was a speech I was giving on this tour, and I, I don't pull any punches, obviously, but what I say is always in line with my, I, I, I should say at least generally in line with my principles of, not judging people and, you know, communicating precisely and very deliberately. And I've been studying nonviolent communication the last couple of years, and it's been a very important development for me. And a lot of libertarians, when they, they hear uh, nonviolent communication, they go, wait a second, it's communication. Of course it's nonviolent. Screw you. And you go, hmm, maybe, <laughs> right, maybe yeah. that's part of the problem. And obviously here, violent is a metaphor, but it's really based on judgment. And are you judging someone else rather than reflecting on your own needs and feelings and whether those are being met by someone else's actions? And so I said something in, in my speech, like, um, I, I don't even remember what it was now, but it was, it was relatively mild. You know, it wasn't like, oh, they're all baby killers. It was that, you know, the, the military is a fundamentally immoral institution. I mean, it was, it was something like really relatively academic like that. And this guy who was a server at the bar was coming down and delivering food to people who were listening to my speech. And he goes back upstairs after hearing this one line, obviously, I don't want to say out of context because it was entirely true in, in what it was, but without a bigger understanding of the points being made here. And he goes upstairs and tells his, his buddy and, and he comes down at the end of the speech and just says, you know, if you have anything bad to say about the military, we need to talk outside. And I just said, oh, we can talk here. And the conversation starts with me saying, are you angry? Which is, you know, one of the, the lessons from nonviolent communication that when you're in a conflict, and someone is upset with you, you can never, if they're talking to you, if you're in a conversation with someone, you can never go wrong turning attention to the other person's needs and feelings. And in this context, it comes across as a little awkward and pretty humorous when there's a guy who's trying to put you in a position to get your face beaten in, and you go, you say, hey, are you, are you angry? You seem very angry, you know, and it can come across as somewhat patronizing, but I just kept going with it, because like I said, does that feel good? You obviously don't feel good right now, do you? And he's like, no, I don't feel good. Like, well, let's do something about that then, shall we? And the conversation proceeded from there. And, you know, there's one line. I'll, I'll throw this one on out as a teaser. And I've already spent more time talking about this than, than I think the video is long at this point. But, you know, when you come up with a, a nice comeback and you think of it like a day later, well, this is one that I thought of in middle school and was like, oh, man, if I only someday have a chance to use it. And here it was. Here it was. <laughs> like 18 years later, this guy starts telling me about, oh, man, I bet you never even saw combat, blah, 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 blah. And I, I, I sort of I already laid out my credentials. And I was like, dude, this isn't a big dick contest. And he was just like, oh, damn. And at that point, the conversation turned and I gave him, uh, you know, he ended up taking a, a copy of the book and a sticker. And I, I think what I told him. Uh, the issue was something about the military being cowardly and that it's, it's fundamentally cowardly, I think, in the way that I described earlier. And, and, and I, I told him, you know, I can't judge you. There's nothing wrong with doing something out of ignorance, but it is cowardly now that the truth is in your face to not face up to it and do something about it. Okay, uh, good good stuff there, but it doesn't remind me of George Costanza. The jerk store called and... <laughs> Uh, okay, Adam. I, I don't know what's happened to Adam lately. Um, he's kind of Adam and the man. He, he had quite the show. I started when I came into libertarianism. Oh, and now check it out. And then there's like some homeless man running the show for him. Uh, I saw his his whole uh, bus at Reno, and he looked like he uh, was Punky Brewster on speed. 
Um, I didn't know what the fuck was going on, but um, not quite the man that he used to be. So uh, yeah, people, I mean, I'm all for the Libertarian Party saying, hey, don't do drugs. But um, I mean, uh, for saying legalize drugs, but I'm saying to you personally, don't do them. Just it, it can't. It doesn't end well. It, it doesn't end well. Okay. Uh, the next one we're going to go to right here is, you heard it presented, Tom Woods, famously one of the first uh, Soho Forum, before they had the Soho Forum, is Gene Epstein doing the uh, these debates. Uh, Michael Malice, and Michael Malice ended up having conscripted someone to do a, an opening, kind of like a, a dynasty kind of opening. So uh, here it goes. Ayn Rand, Tom Woods, alphabetical order. That's not alphabetical order. My, my, that's, that's, what, what alphabet is this? Uh, Gene Epstein is the moderator. Alexander Hamilton on the money. Uh, shoot Aaron Burr. There we go, Aaron Burr. Oh, fuck. Okay, there you go. So, um... <laughs> Okay, let's play some clips of this one. I don't want to go into too much uh, detail here. Uh, you can check out that this is one of the, the great interviews that, or, or debates that first started this, got my attention to the Soho Forum. They moved away from wherever they were at. Uh, currently here showing this one, they went to Soho. And those have been great debates that they've had going forward. Uh, so that's the open. This is uh, how Tom screwed the pooch, according to- Tom uh, kind of screwed the pooch on this one, because given the resolution, I don't think it's debatable. I think it's kind of tautological. Because there are many people who are heroes for the cause of liberty who didn't do that much. Uh, Paul Revere rode a horse. He's a hero for the cause of liberty. Thomas uh, Paine wrote a pamphlet. He's a hero for the cause of liberty. That one action defines you. Uh, if we had a resolution, is Lee Harvey Oswald a murderer? Oh, he only killed someone once. You know, this other time he held old Lincoln. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying Lee killed uh, President Kennedy? Jeez, uh, malice. Across the street. It takes a great deal and a great accomplishment, but that one accomplishment is enough, in my opinion, for the resolution to pass. So let's discuss Hamilton and Hamilton's life. I listened to the, the Tom Woods show uh, from two weeks ago, episode number, Tom, do you remember 371 or something like that? And he had this great episode about this National Review piece, which I'm sure was terrible, because the National Review is awful, everything they say is wrong. And you had, as your guest, the historian Kevin Gutzman, and the episode was attacking Hamilton, and what did he say? Your guy on your show, Attacking Hamilton, says, the National Review piece also exaggerates Hamilton's personal virtues, which I think is hard to do. Although I don't like his political virtues, I think Hamilton was a heroic person. His story is spectacular. This is your guy on your show two weeks ago, episode 379, or whatever it was. Okay, that's just a bad argument. That's, that's not Tom's argument. Uh, but uh, yeah, and I found that what was interesting about this whole debate was uh, Tom uh, mopped the floor with him. But uh, let's keep going. This one is Hamilton is Ayn Rand. What? Like not against Hamilton. The, the Federalist Papers were the John Galt speech for the Constitution. Say That's what? how to best look at it. Now, Ignore Hamilton them. gets attacked because he wanted a strong government. And this is an example of definition switching. Because I can say... By the way, every time I read uh, Alice Schreiber, which I've read five or six times because I've really enjoyed the story, uh, I skip about 200 pages. <laughs> 
pages of the John Galt speech. Boring and don't care. Ayn Rand was a very strong woman. And my friend who's a bodybuilder will say, how much can she bench? And the answer is negligible. Because when I say strong, I don't mean physically strong, I mean psychologically strong, emotionally strong. When Hamilton said a strong government, as Tom will surely admit, he didn't mean Chairman Mao or Stalin or totalitarianism. He meant an effective government. And some people criticize this by saying, well, if we can't have complete freedom, a weak government's better than a strong government. And because they think of it as a spectrum, right? And you just want to get as close to zero as possible. But the correct way to look at it is musical chairs. Because what if, let's look, people forget the opportunity cost. Let's suppose I have a terrible job. So not only do I not have a good job, I'm also forestalled from being, when I'm employed, from looking for a good job, so I have the worst of all worlds. So when he said a strong government, he meant a government that does what it says and means what it means, but is still limited in its scope. And we know what a weak government looks like. It's not Ancapistan, it's Detroit. Oh, okay. Well, just keep going on some of this. I, I, I do encourage you to watch this. By the way, I found, uh, I always find Michael Malice uh, very interesting. I found this debate lacking from him. Like he came in there more of a comedy routine or trying to get Tom off his game, which he admitted to. Uh, Tom came in there with some strong facts. Here's his open. Well, Gene, Michael, this august organization, and you ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank all of you. And as Michael said, I also want to make clear at the outset that I'm very fond of Michael Malice. I hold him in very high regard, and I consider him to be a man of high intelligence. I want to place special emphasis on his intelligence because it might be difficult for you to perceive it beneath all the preposterous nonsense he's uttering tonight. <laughs> John Marshall called Alexander Hamilton one of the greatest men who ever lived. Well, Marshall would say something like that, but Michael Malice has done him one better, calling him the greatest man whoever lived. Nope. That was back on episode 411. Nope. Oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. I said well, that was my opinion. I can't say oh, that. Uh, okay. He said it was You're his lying opinion. About me. Yeah. I accept that friendly amendment. Well, I dissent from that judgment and vigorously so. So permit me to share with you now the other 98% of the story that Mr. Malice omitted and without which we cannot render an informed judgment. Now, I realize that I am defying the conventional wisdom by arguing in the negative tonight. Everybody admires Alexander Hamilton. On the left, they admire him. On the right, they admire him. He's, a, he's one of the beloved figures in American history. But if American history has taught me anything, beloved figures are the worst of all. Amen. And, uh, you know, he did uh, do pretty cool musical. So there you go. Um, okay. Uh, last, uh, we'll do two more uh, little clips here. This one is strong, effective government, question mark. I don't know what I mean by that, but here we go. Government leads to people getting slaughtered in the street and so on. And so he just meant effective. He didn't mean a government that would control everything. All right, well, how naive a political scientist would someone have to be to advocate the principles I am about to relate to you and think that they could describe a government that could possibly be kept limited? For example, on the necessary and proper clause, we all know that Hamilton, as our social studies teachers told us approvingly, used that clause to argue for implied powers in the Constitution. Hey, we can't write everything down. Come on. It's implied in there. And in fact, he concluded his discussion of this matter by saying, hence, consequently, the necessity and propriety of exercising the authorities entrusted to a government on principles of liberal construction. Principles of liberal construction. Is that likely to yield you a free society in the long run? All you have to do is look around for your answer. You don't have to listen to me. You don't have to listen to Michael Malice. Just look around. You'll have your answer. His idea of implied powers was then codified in McCulloch versus Maryland, 1819, with John Marshall at times quoting Hamilton word for word. So the bricks are being laid for the state under which we live today using the very words of Hamilton himself. 
Okay, and let's get back to the last quote here, or clip here. Uh, that one was supposed to play a little longer, but I'm cutting it down because we're trying to get through this here. Uh, this one is, any founder as a hero? Uh, this is the question posed by Gene Epstein, who looks thrilled here. Ready to go. All right, thanks for that answer. Uh, Tom Woods, my question to you. Uh, you have said that, uh, again, uh, the, the, the flip side is that you acknowledge some of the things that Hamilton did that are somewhat inspiring, that sound pretty good, but you've said the faults, the drawbacks, the harm he did way offsets the good, therefore he cannot be a hero for the cause of liberty. Probably a balanced assessment would apply to almost any founding father. I'm wondering this, can you pick any of, uh, of, ha of Hamilton's contemporaries and say, despite his faults, he was indeed a hero for the cause of liberty. Is there anybody you can choose, and can you explain why? Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, uh, Michael and I, I think, agree on, on this much, that if we were judging these men in the year 2015, we would find them all wanting. So I think... No. Would you, want you would still... Okay. So would you, you rather have any of them than the presidents now? Come on. Well, seriously. okay, yeah, that's true, but... I would hope that today, as the ideas have developed, oh, yes, they I'm would sorry. get a little I'm, bit yes, better than they were then. Yes, all right. So given that, if I give an answer, people will say, but Woods, what about this? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. You can say, what about this to all of them? But I would say, if I, but if I had to be, if I had to be pinned down, um, it's hard because I, there are serious drawbacks to all of them. I mean, there are, I mean there, certainly there are heroic actions, people who made physical sacrifices, I get all that. But then at the same time, there are plenty of people who made sacrifices who then were involved in moral enormities. And it's very hard to say, well, that's, that's entirely heroic. But I do have some respect for James Madison, who, who collaborated with Hamilton, of course, in the Federalist, and who professional Madison historians will try to claim that he was absolutely consistent throughout his life. That's the Lance Banning thesis. He obviously was not completely consistent throughout his life, but he did have heroic periods where he recognized the threat, for example, of the Hamiltonian system. He could see where the Hamiltonian interpretation of the Constitution was going to lead. And in fact, by the way, here's a real, real difference between Madison and Hamilton. Hamilton knew that the Constitution that had been ratified was not what he wanted. And he'd, said, he'd made that perfectly clear. Everybody knew what his position was. Madison also was complaining about it. He privately, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, said that he didn't expect it to last more than a few years. He thought there were a lot of problems with it. But the difference is, Madison understood that's the Constitution we have. And this is the Constitution that was sold to the people on the basis of mm. enumerated powers and the powers of the states. That's not the system Madison wanted, as we know from his nationalist plan. He did not want to be called the father of the Constitution, but his view was, this is the Constitution we gave the people, so this is the one I will defend. Uh, Tom's a, I don't know why I made that noise. <laughs> Tom's a, a great uh, historian, and uh, this is a great debate. So uh, I think this, and then there's a follow-up episode about this. Uh, let's keep going on here. Uh, this is episode 576, Feminism, Enemy or of Liberty? Question mark With Milo Yiannopoulos before he got canceled completely out. Uh, for saying he liked to be diddled by uh, older men when he was a kid. Uh, let's play it away. What is feminism? Described it in a totally factual way. I said that something along the lines is basically an attack vector for liberal authoritarianism. I mean, you know, feminism is just another front in the left's attempt to language police and to bully all of the people that it doesn't like, um, as represented, you know, most obviously and most perfectly, it finds its fullest and highest expression in the um, the rich, straight, white male of folklore. And this is a person that, you know, modern feminism has come to define itself by, uh, you know, define itself in opposition to. Modern feminism has moved so far away from equality that, you know, it really should pick another name. Um, it should just call itself what it is, misandry. Uh, and, you know, it's, 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 it's created this specter, this mysterious uh, 
force that could supposedly control society called the patriarchy. Uh, and when you look at that, look at look at this, you sort of um, unpack all of this, you realise actually it's just a sort of loose bundle of a lot of old authoritarian leftisms. Well, let's talk about feminism, though. When you talk about modern feminism, couldn't there be some feminists who would come along and say, look, feminism comes in many varieties. There are feminists who believe men and women are basically the same. There are feminists who believe men and women are different and that should be celebrated. There are socialist feminists. There are libertarian feminists. So how can you bundle them all together like this? Well, the reason you can do it is the time that there were different strands of feminism, represented by large groups of people, different organizations, um, university departments, books, scholars, journalists. The time when there was variety in feminism is largely over. Now, you can read um, any of the books by Christina Hoff Summers at the American Enterprise Institute if you want to find out more about the intellectual history of feminism, such as it is. But I think what we can say with some confidence today is that one of the greatest movements in our intellectual and social history. One of the things that we can be proudest of is the women's rights movement, something that has enabled women to uh, to vote, to take, to participate in the workforce, Say to what? do all of the things that we think that a, you know, a person who is equal to us should be able to do. Women you know, who are paid the same, and they are paid the same, by the way, uh, for the same work, who are given access to all of the same institutions as men. They have equality of opportunity, which is the one that matters, which is the only one that we should be trying to enforce. But aha, isn't no. the, wouldn't a feminist jump in right here and say, see, you're a feminist. I am a feminist. I'm totally a feminist. I'm like a, I'm like a, I'm a second wave feminist i believe in the equality and celebration and glory of women of course i do i'm not a big fan of milo i think he was uh i don't know about a psyop but um you know whatever uh but uh, once again uh, tom uh, and by the way i was listening to one today and he had there was a, some reference to him interviewing cantwell uh <laughs> on one of the first few hundred episodes um i missed that one Okay, I didn't. I didn't go back and listen to it. Maybe I will. I, I don't think we're going to include it at all. But this is the greatness of the Tom Woods twenty three hundred ep- plus episodes. Is you get all kinds of stuff. Let's go. Keep going with Milo. This is top three things people get wrong. Ready? Go. Asking to rank them. Okay, do it. Do it. Do it. Three, thi- three things these people believe that are demonstrably false, but that they repeat incessantly. Sure. Well, the wage gap. The wage gap isn't true. True. If you've heard that women get paid less than men for the same work, that's a lie. Uh, what do you have to do to uh, – should I go through them like, super briefly? All you have to do with that is say, um, okay, as a business, why are you not employing more women then if you can get them cheaper for the same? Yeah, sure. And I'll link to uh, – today, let's see. This is going to be episode 576. So on the show notes page, I'll also link to the whole episode we did on this. This will be tomwiz.com slash 576. It'll have links to all your stuff too there. But yeah, go ahead, g- give us the uh, – like. let's say you're on Fox News and they give you just five seconds to talk. How would you explain it? <laughs> If you take all of the money that men earn and all of the money that women earn and do a simple division, you will find that women earn less totally. But that confuses wages with earnings. What women hear when they when feminists tell them that they're 77 cents to the dollar is that they'll get paid less for the same work as men. That isn't true. The mm. reason that overall women earn more, uh, earn less total money than men is, well, guess what? They have kids and yeah. they make different life choices. They uh, women very often work shorter hours, take longer holidays, irrespective Correct. of children, all sorts of other different life. And they choose different subjects. Like if women want to earn more, they should stop doing uh, liberal arts courses and uh, make in engineering, but they choose right. not to do that, not because of some patriarchal, super structural conspiracy, but because they don't choose to. If you think there's a conspiracy that's holding women out of physics and maths, you have to explain why there isn't one holding them out of biology and veterinary medicine, where they dominate. Women simply choose different things to men. And, um, you know, the, the, the wage gap is like babyish economics that no serious reputable economist will take seriously, and no, none, none do, in fact. And, um, you know, it's, it's advocacy research designed to bash one half of the population by the other group, which is currently in, in, in power. Uh, at least in the media, which is women. So that's a lie and ridiculous. Uh, the second crazy thing they believe, which is demonstrably untrue, would be the um, the would be campus rape culture. The idea that on uh, right. liberal progressive campuses in America, there is the, you know the, the liberal campus.
Texas and America are hotbeds of racism, sexism and rape is funny enough, um, you know, on its own merits in the same way that liberal run cities are the only ones that have problems with, you know, with black uh, riots and violence because they <laughs> always seems to be a left-wing politician in charge of these places. Um, it's, it's ridiculous to suggest that American campuses, which all of the data shows are some of the safest places for young women, are hotbeds of rape with comparable uh, sexual assault um, statistics to African, you know, war-torn African countries. It just doesn't pass the most basic right. common sense test. Indeed, many of these moral panics, and that's what we call them, when something's so stupid, it can't possibly be true, nonetheless kind of uh, grabs the public. I'm not going to keep playing that. I can't agree more. And if you break into the statistics, one, if you send your daughter to college and you believe those statistics, you are a negligent human, not, not mentioned parent. Uh, four out of five women are, are sexually assaulted on campus. Four out of five... 80 percent that's <laughs> that's absolutely absurd why are we sending them to these rape compounds uh you're not okay so uh it's it's those statistics uh take into account people who were um uh you know unwantedly kissed maybe some autistic gentleman uh let's listen to this podcast goes up and kisses a girl at a party she says she was sexually assaulted sorry that's not the, that's not what's happening uh, sorry to break it to you. By the way, I did a breakdown. Andy and I, uh, Garbage Main, did a breakdown for our Patreons only. Or we don't have a Patreon account, so it's not that. But our members only on Odyssey. Then it goes into Spotify. You can do there or our Substack, uh, which we do for free. And we broke down um, Hannah Cox talking about men's rights with some of this stuff. It's the most egregious kind of thing she says. She she breaks out statistics about how men are not. Um, um, wrongfully convicted because only two to 10, that's a great big percentage difference, two to 10% of rape allegations are false. Therefore, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, you're saying um, in, in some regard, 10% of rape allegations are false? That is a high percentage of rape. This is rape. This isn't like he cheated on a rape allegations are false. Anyway, so uh, some of the feminism, by the way, if you use yourself as a feminist, you might want to rethink your your place in life. It's a uh, ridiculous and uh, misnomer. Anyway, we'll get back to that. Look, family courts get me worked up. Um, have a lot of info on that. We can talk about that more later. This is Tom Woods Week. That concludes. I don't know, one of these days, what, day maybe four, 2.5. I'm not sure because we're going to have to cut some of this up. But coming up, we finish off that second section of clips that we have. Brian McClanahan, uh, talk about Pinochet, Cato. We've got a lot coming up, folks. So enjoy everything to do with Tom Woods. Episode zero through 2300 plus. Thank you. But she's back. Chick-fil-A is completely overrated. It's not that good. I prefer Zaxby's. I prefer Popeye's. Takes a tough man to make a tender forecast, Nick. And I guess that's me. Keep fucking that chicken. <laughs> Should I vote for Dick Cheney on the Libertarian Party? Do I yes. have an obligation to vote for Dick Cheney? I would say so. Yes. Did it work for those people? <laughs> no. It never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... But it might work for us. That one dude was like, not a podcast, I can't find it anywhere. And they don't have video. Oh, yeah, Peter Janky. Yeah. Peter. Yeah, I blocked him. I'll do it. If he unblocks me, I'll... I'll... He'll buy your shirt if you unblock him, Bert. He's a wigger. 
<laughs> yeah, nothing cooler than so a 49 year old like, yeah, I just started I live streaming. Cut me some slack. I'm fucking. I'm pretty high tech for a boomer. Uh, but anyways, I'm.